This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera and I can use any photography filter I like, and I've tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code Burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code Burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters, capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people from all over the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Austin Gallagher. Austin's an American marine biologist, researcher, explorer, author, and entrepreneur. He's best known for his extensive research on sharks and hosting and producing content for Discovery Channel's Shark Week programming. His shark research has taken him across the globe, more than 50 scientific expeditions, including South Africa and Japan, and he's published more than 100 scientific papers. Austin founded Beneath the Waves, a nonprofit organization focused on ocean conservation, and he currently serves as its CEO. He's a National Geographic Explorer, a current fellow at the Explorers Club. He was the first American marine biologist to make the Forbes 30 under 30 list at the age of 29. And he recently was awarded Scuba Diving Magazine's Sea Hero Award. He's a busy man, as you can see, and I was really really fortunate enough to catch up with him for a short chat. We talked about the great white shark dilemma off the coast of South Africa. You know, the the cold waters there off the Atlantic Ocean in this area of the world was one of the best places in the world to observe and photograph great white sharks. There was an entire tourism industry built on and around the sharks just off the coast of Cape Town. And people came from all over the world just for that reason. Now that's changed, and we'll talk about why. And it might not be why you think. We talk tiger sharks, Greenland sharks. That's my personal fascination, Greenland sharks. Did you know researchers believe there are Greenland sharks now swimming in the cold Arctic waters that may be 500, 600 years old? I found it amazing. We talk about shark conservation, overfishing, a huge discovery in the Bahamas that Austin made with the help of tiger sharks, Blue Carbon being a social entrepreneur, and a lot more. His socials are at Dr. Austin Gallagher on Instagram, and Gallagher spelled G A double L G H E R. His Twitter slash X at Dr. Austin G. Website is austingallagher.com. And with all that out of the way, here now with Without any further ado, is my conversation with Dr. Austin Gallagher. Austin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Richard, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. 
Likewise. I've been following you and your work for several months now. And actually, there's a story on how I found you. And I'm going to tell it, but this is going to be kind of a collaborative effort. I'm going to start the story and you're going to finish it and you'll know when to jump in. I'll give you the cue. Okay. Perfect. I was in Namibia and this would have been early to mid July, I guess. And we're in the middle of the desert and my guides one morning, they're a little bit more giddy, a little more excited than normal. They had heard that a couple orcas had been spotted off the Namibian coast, which is not that common. They went on to say that the orcas were heading south to South Africa to feed on great white sharks. To feed on, uh, at first I thought, you know, I didn't believe it. I, I didn't think much of it. When you think of great white sharks, you think of them being the apex predator in any marine environment they inhabit. Great whites and orcas competing for food, maybe, but one being the link in the food chain of another, I'd never guessed. So fast forward a week or two, and I'm tuning into Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, and there's Dr. Austin Gallagher, and there you are in the belly of the beast. This is where you take over, and but if you wouldn't mind, please explain the situation off the South African coast regarding orcas and great white sharks. And then you could talk about the belly of the beast, what it is, what it was like inside, what you're trying to accomplish. Perfect. I love the lead in there, Richard and <laughs> South Africa uh, and Africa in general is such a special place for wildlife. And it has been somewhere that I've been very fortunate to visit many times uh, in my career. And when you think about sharks, which is really, you know, my pure expertise and background. South Africa is a place you grow up hearing about legendary locale that holds the largest and most abundant seasonal population of white sharks. And that is not the case anymore. It's still a stronghold, but the reason like you alluded to that this has changed so much is because of killer whales, also known as orca. And these are, literally the apex predator in our oceans, killer whales. And they've really emerged over the last probably seven to 12 years uh, as, you know, one of the species that is changing the most in terms of its movement patterns and its diet uh, as it relates to a changing planet. We are living in a, in a rapidly changing ocean. Right. And by following animals and watching them, taking pictures of them, doing science in partnership with them, we can sometimes pick up on clues into what's happening. And your story, Richard, about the orca being seen off in Namibia, which for all of our listeners out there, Namibia is just northwest of South Africa. It's, it's the next country on the northwest side. Um, there just, if you go north from Cape Town. So it's right there. So you go basically around the southern coast tip of the continent of Africa. And those orcas are literally swimming towards South Africa. I'm sure over the last 10 years or so, the white shark population has been displaced by killer whales off of South Africa. And this has happened because there are two orca named Port and Starboard that have specialized at hunting sharks. As a matter of fact, my South African research colleague, Dr. Allison Towner, was literally just messaging me on WhatsApp two days ago with sightings of Port and Starboard off Robben Island. Uh, which is you know, pretty close to the Namibian border yeah, in South African waters. 
these two sh- uh, these two uh, killer whales have learned to strategically hunt great white sharks. And what they're doing is they will actually go in and hunt and kill these animals by making a small incision on the ventral or bottom side of these sharks. They will suck out the liver, which is loaded with energy. That's where sharks hold most of their energy stores. And we know this is happening because these white sharks have been washing up dead on beaches for, you know, almost 10 years now. So that has reduced the number of white sharks by just killing them. But what it's also done in a much more powerful way and something that we see in nature is that the fear of being killed by orcas has displaced the rest of the white sharks. And now we have a very fragmented population of white sharks. A lot of the large ones are missing. And this is a huge conservation issue. It's also a major issue for the socioeconomics of the South African coast because so many ecotourism operators, uh, you know, have built entire industries that support, you know, hundreds of, of people, uh, local livelihoods through people who want to see white sharks cage diving. So what has happened here is we have a, an ecosystem in change and, uh, it is a huge conservation issue because white sharks are, you know, quite threatened globally. And this is all the result of two individuals for the most part. Yes. And it's not crazy to, you know, wrap your head around that. If you think about it, because killer whales can pretty much do anything they want. They can, you know, circumvent the entire global oceans because they're warm blooded. Uh, they can take down almost any type of prey, whether we're talking sharks, mammals, other whales, they can hunt in coordinated fashion and have extremely uh, evolved and adapted communication skill- skills and individual dialects. So they are assassins and they are really in control of the ocean. And, and we're seeing that more and more now. And they're attacking boats off the Portugal, Spain coast too. Yep. That has been reported. Um, and we don't know if it's actually, uh, an agonistic or aggressive behavior towards the boats. It's very easy to kind of say, well, they're pissed off at people and they're hitting boats, but they may just be, you know, uh, interested. And sometimes we see in orcas, I'm not an orca expert, but I've actually read about this issue quite a bit is that they will, um, have certain innovative play behaviors that they will learn and then they will exhibit seasonally. They will transmit that culturally to their uh, other pod members, and then they'll change and do something else the next year. So uh, they do change a lot. And yeah, but they are popping up in, in lots of different places that we necessarily weren't seeing them in, in, in the past. Uh, another little anecdote is uh, off of uh, Mexico and Baja, just this past year, there was a, a documented video of a killer whale going in and killing a whale shark. It's the most insane wow. footage I've ever seen. I'm actually writing that up right now with some of my colleagues from Mexico. Um, there's also evidence of uh, killer whales essentially single-handedly destroying the population of uh, otters, sea otters off of the Alaskan coastline. And that was just six or seven orcas that did it over like six years. So they are literally uh, the ultimate in the ocean. And they're so damn intelligent too. They sure are. Yeah, they're they're on on the bucket list for me. I, I've been very fortunate to see them in many instances from the boat. Uh, I've seen them hunt. Uh, you know, it's just incredible off of British Columbia and taking down seals uh, in a coordinated fashion. But I've never been in the water with one, and that's certainly something I'd like to experience one day. So this situation in South Africa, how did this lead to you, Doctor Austin Gallagher, being inside the belly of the beast? Well, I've been very fortunate to work. It's a good point. I've been very fortunate to work with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery for you know many years now, and 
uh, with Shark Week as the ultimate platform for getting people excited about these animals, being able to do innovative new scientific projects and celebrate the incredible nature of these animals. So uh, for years now, I had this idea of wanting to do a show on scavenging in white sharks and white sharks. And this is based on some research that I've done on South Africa about 10 years ago. White sharks are extremely tuned into the presence of whale carcasses that are floating. Uh, it is a huge part of their ecology. Very important. It brings in the largest individuals. We've seen 40 plus white sharks on one whale carcass and a dead whale you know, really does provide so much for the ecosystem and the sharks are usually the first on the scene, but we've never been able to simulate that. And, you know, a dead whale shows up, how do we scramble and do, you know, some sort of science or even a show about that? It's really difficult. So what we want to do is create a decoy just similar to what we do with a seal decoy or any other type of decoy to manufacture a scavenging event and see how the white sharks would respond to that. So uh, we were able to get this concept uh, greenlit by the, the network and working with my South African colleagues, uh, Dr. Allison Towner, Dr. Matt Dickin. We were able to go down to South Africa, build a whale carcass decoy about 20 foot uh, in length, a humpback whale, juvenile humpback whale that had a viewing platform from inside, literally going inside the belly of the beast, uh, wired the entire thing with cameras and sensors. And we wanted to see if this whale carcass could bring out from the shadows, these large white sharks that have been seemingly lost because of the killer whales off of South Africa. Right. Were you surprised that because great whites are known to have a very acute sense of smell that they were so easily fooled by a decoy? No, I wasn't because these animals have sharks have a very evolved and, uh, high powered suite of senses that is constantly, you know, sensing the environment. Visual is one olfactory is the other. And that's probably their most powerful that olfactory is smell. Uh, they don't have very good sense of hearing. Actually they, they can hear, but they're actually hearing particle motion vibration. So they don't really have very evolved ears, but visual, um, sensory through the nose and then electromagnetic, some of the other ones that are really important. But for this, you know, we had the visual and, uh, we also you know, were using some uh, attractant, you know, because you do need to also use that uh, for white sharks, just like any type of uh, ecotourism operation, because they really don't want to stick around boats or come towards boats. It's not very interesting to them. But that actually proves my point here with the decoy is that we were able to keep white sharks around because of the presence of this huge, you know, seemingly dead prey item. And what was amazing to me, Richard, was that the sharks behaved very similarly to what we see in real life situations with a real dead whale that's floating. You know, we saw that through where they would uh, attack and, uh, you know, take the first bite. So the investigator investigatory bumps. And for me to be there watching all of this was truly the coolest thing I've ever done in my entire career. Um, it's very easy to write it off as a stunt because obviously it, it kind of has elements of that, but I was able to get closer to white sharks than maybe anybody ever has before with a you know half inch piece of plexiglass in front of my face. And I was able to make eye contact with these animals without the obstruction of a metal bar that's putting off, you know, a magnetic, um, you know, sense to these animals face. I literally want to share, I want to share one other story from this. Well, there's a couple, but Please one, do. one that was really powerful for me, and, you know, I'm, and I'm inside this and just imagine I'm inside this floating 
whale carcass made, made of, of plexiglass. Made of plexiglass. Plexiglass. And I'm inside of it. I have full scooby gear on. It's freezing cold. You know, the water is pretty murky. It's off the coast of South Africa. I'm freezing my butt off. I'm in there with a full setup, full face mask with uh, underwater communication capabilities to the main boat. And uh, there's three white sharks swimming around the decoy. You can't really see them too well in one day because it's really murky, waiting for the visibility to get a little bit better. Once that happens, uh, you know, I'm literally staring face to face with these 12 to 13 foot white sharks, which isn't that big for a white shark, but still quite large. And I remember this one individual swimming up towards me and almost stopping in its tracks when it actually saw, because predators will often look into the eyes of other animals and, and the eye contact is really important for predators. So I literally made eye contact with this one white shark as it came right up to me to the front of the, the plexiglass. I was in the water in the decoy and th- it's hard to describe this without trying to anthropomorphize or personify the animal, but it, it stopped in its tracks and it almost lowered op- opened its jaw. Like its jaw was dropped <laughs> and looking right at me and s- saying, what is, I've never seen anything like this. I was not anticipating seeing a moving large fetus, essentially from that thing's perspective inside, you know, inside this, this decoy. And I feel like I blew the shark's mind. Literally, usually we're the ones who have our minds blown when we're watching animals, but I feel like I blew the shark's mind. And I just had this, it felt like it was a couple minute interaction, but that might've been a 10 second, you know, uh, dance there that we had. And I've never felt so connected to a shark, uh, in the wild before. Wow. That's quite a story at any point during all of this great white sharks gnashing and chewing at the decoy you're occupying. Did you reconsider the life choices you made that led you to that moment? (laughs) For sure. Going into the show, you know, this is months of pre-production, you just put a lot of trust in the team. That's one thing that folks don't know about these, these shows, but really any type of research expedition that, that we're doing is that we have incredibly talented, skilled people with us doing this and literally the best in the biz. So the engineers and the, the folks who made the decoy did a really good job, you know, and they definitely kept me safe. <coughs> however, however, part two of the show, when we went to uh, the East coast of South Africa, we went to the coast of Durban, uh, we actually attracted a 18 to 20 foot great white. And this was a huge one, uh, female, arguably the largest white shark ever, uh, seen in the last five or six years in South Africa because of the killer whale displacement that has affected them. And it was crystal clear blue water. And it was during this moment, you know, over the course of probably six hours when that individual was with us, that there were a few, few instances where I, I, completely got nervous. I mean, I, I always kind of get a little nervous doing anything on the ocean, no matter what. I feel like you have to have a little bit of healthy fear, but this animal was almost as big as the decoy. Uh, it was very comfortable around the decoy. It totally knew that it was in charge. And I was able to watch from subsurface and also popping up out of the decoy and looking right over the side, subtle, small changes in the animal's behavior. And I could see that it was starting to get more comfortable, started to change its approach trajectories really making those types of observations when it starts changing its angle pitch and how it's coming up to it. I'm like, okay, this thing is about to make contact. And of course, you know, it started to do that. So just a small nudge from the nose of this shark, it's probably a two, 3000 pound animal 
moved the entire unit. You know, it was so powerful. So I, I did start to get a little bit worried. It did end up biting the decoy, uh, ripping off one of the, the fake pectoral fins of the, the whale decoy. Um, and I saw down the entire you know, mouth of that animal. It was so profound for me, Richard, that I was dry heaving, you know, involuntarily for probably 20 seconds after that happened, just out of a pure fight or flight response from a part of my brain that was saying, what is going on here? This is not okay. Wow. Um, it was so raw and, and really powerful. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not scared of sharks, but I have a really healthy respect for them. And, and that, that experience really just reinforced that. So this is a related question and it's a bit more serious than the one I just asked, but is there a, was there a formative event or moment in your childhood or your life where it sent you down this path to study sharks and spend time with sharks? I love that question. It's, it's hard for me to pinpoint one thing specifically. There were certainly a couple of moments, a couple of, uh, you know, watershed moments, but then there were also just, I think for me, it was really more of a continuous stream of books and interest. And nobody told me I couldn't do that. You know, when I proclaimed for the first time or first few times as a six, seven, eight year old boy, this is what I want to do. I love these animals. Nobody ever said, you can't do that, you know, uh, which is probably good looking back, but obviously going to aquariums and, and, you know, spending time in the ocean, those things are obviously huge. I think there was probably one experience that was really cool for me. Uh, and I've shared it before and I'll just hit it quickly, but I, I was on a vacation with my family in Mexico, uh, Isla Mujeres, which is now, you know, really regarded as probably the premier location to swim with whale sharks, right? The largest fish in the ocean up to 40 feet filter feeding plankton eating shark. Incredible. Um, Isla Mujeres. And, you know, I saw, you know, it in, uh, there was a penned off area where you could go and snorkel with a nurse shark. And I remember there was this, uh, this local, um, uh, ecotourism operator, I guess, but he's really just a guy who was just there collecting money, showing people the sharks. And he was holding a, a large nurse shark right there. And I remember being so amazed and so uh, blown away by it. And my dad was like, you got to go in, you know, pay the guy a few pesos, go in and just be next to it. And, uh, I was actually too scared to go in. I might've been like 10 or 11 years old. I think I put a couple feet down onto the ladder and, uh, it was, that was enough for me, but I just remember seeing that out of the water like that and just kind of blew me away. And, um, you know, come a long way from that nurse shark in the pen in Mexico to belly of the beast. Mm. So I want to talk about shark for just a moment. David Naylor, he's a scientist at the University of Florida's shark research program, complains or has a critique that Shark Week uses graphic, violent footage gratuitously in its portrayal of sharks as a form of wildlife sensationalism. Do you think that is fair or out of bounds? I don't think it's, it's, I think it's neither. I think that what Shark Week is showing is the true nature of these animals. We, they are killers. They kill for a living. And when we're able to see the true nature of these animals, I think that's actually the most important thing because it reinforces how we actually do need to respect them and we need to be careful about them. If we didn't have any fear of these animals at all, actually probably wouldn't be good for us because even though we're not on the menu and they don't want to kill and eat humans, you know, incidents and attacks do happen every year. It's just it's a fact of life. It does happen. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it's much less than even attacks from dogs on people. But 
uh, you know, there's so many statistics out there that you can rattle off. We don't need to go there, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a fair critique, but I don't think it is out of, I don't think it's, uh, you know, something that we should always necessarily lead with because people do want to be entertained on TV and we also have to show the true nature of these animals. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a good mixture. I, you know, for me personally, um, I'm not interested in, and being involved in projects that uh, demonize animals or, you know, focusing on shows that are just about attacks. In fact, I've never done a show that mentions the word shark attack or is a recreation or a dramatization show. It's just, that's not for me. For me, it's about the science and their predatory nature is why we're so, one of the main reasons why society around the world is so fascinated with these animals. So I don't think we need to necessarily bury the lead, um, but I also don't think we need to sensationalize them. I had Jeff Corwin on the podcast. He was obviously with Animal Planet, Disney, Nat Geo, episode 27, if you're at home listening. And we talked about the need to balance uh, science and education versus entertainment. And you know, how do you go about that balance between science and entertainment? It's a difficult mix. I mean, all science and no entertainment, nobody's going to watch. Uh, no one's going to care as much. But you have all entertainment and no science, nobody learns anything. Sure. For me, I think it's always been about just making it relatable. I'm just a guy. I'm just a I'm fairly normal person, you know, uh, in my opinion. And um, being able to connect with people is the number one thing for me. And I have really enjoyed being able to make scientific concepts, which are sometimes complex or sometimes make people's skin crawl accessible and you know straightforward for, for the masses. Um, for me, it's about celebrating the animals and being excited, you know, so my excitement and my passion and love and quest to discover and make cool observations that should be entertaining enough. And then we can add in the actual sharks themselves so that we don't need to show, you know, 15 shots of a slow motion bite happening over and over again, because it's balanced out with here's this, you know, person who's providing, you know, a big part of the entertainment themselves. And for me, it's just trying to do it in an authentic way. So finding that balance is key. You can't go too hard in, in one direction. Um, I think science is cool. I think sharks are cool. And, you know, that middle ground is, is where I love to play. So in the very unlikely event that you encounter an aggressive shark while swimming or surfing, what should a person do? It depends on the situation. Um, yeah, for the average person, it would be very rare. For me, it happens all the time, every year. It does. Um, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say on every expedition, if I'm in the water with sharks over the course of, let's just say, three days, you're certainly going to see behaviors in at least one individual that can be suggestive of, okay, the shark's being a little bit more aggressive or it's trying to tell me something and I, maybe I should get out of the water or give this individual some space. For sure. It doesn't mean it wants to eat me. It just means that this animal needs some space right now. Just like, you know, when you go over to someone's house and you meet their dog for the first time, not dogs don't like everybody. And sometimes dogs have problems with people. And if a dog is giving you those weird signs that it doesn't want to be pet, don't pet that dog. You know, that's what happens when people go to the hospital because they get bitten by, you know, Jerry, the golden retriever, who's never done anything bad in his or her, his life. Um, so it's just about not being uh, stupid and pushing the boundaries, you know? So for the average person is out swimming, mind their own business. And there's a shark that's uh, acting aggressively, anything in particular 
they should do or shouldn't do? I would say the number one thing you want to avoid is trying to look like a scared, worried prey item. So (laughs) if you're running away or swimming away or splashing, making a lot of commotion, that will literally attract any predator on earth. I don't care if it's a snake or a, you know, an osprey. Signs of struggle is what all predators are hardwired to pay attention to because it means that it's time for them to take advantage of the situation. So going from that point, it would try and be calm, move away slowly, not splashing, um, obviously trying to keep eye contact or keep an eye on, on what's going on and, and really just trying to trying to get out of the water as soon as possible without freaking out, which is not always the easiest. And we're talking about in our own minds here, balancing, you know, this flood of hormones that is going to come into our brain, just like happened to me when I was in the belly of the beast. Um, so it's, it's intense. (laughs) No, no dry heaving, (laughs) no dry heaving. Nope. We'll be right back to the show after this short message. This episode is brought to you by travel Inti. Travel Inti is your gateway to a world of unforgettable adventures. And with a community of over 175,000 members spanning 200 countries, they're your ultimate travel resource. Travel Inti is on a mission to make travel planning stress-free and your adventures even more exciting. From flights, accommodations, dining, family activities, nightlife, walking tours, Travel Inti's got you covered with zero commissions. Travel Inti connects you directly with the world's finest businesses, eliminating middlemen and any extra fees. Established in sunny Florida in 2015, Travel Inti is a global team of avid travelers and tech enthusiasts revolutionizing the travel industry. How do they choose their partners around the world? Their teams explore, dine, and revel in every city, ensuring you get the best experience possible. Your safety is their top priority, so they rigorously test each restaurant and hotel themselves for your peace of mind. Their personalized service is crafted to match your preferences, complete with 24-7 support. And you can access all your trip details conveniently through their website or user-friendly app. With their extensive global network, they bring you exclusive rates, upgrades, and unique experiences that you just can't find anywhere else. So... Say goodbye to overpaying and hello to thrilling adventures with Travel Inti. To start saving now on your next big travel adventure, please visit www.travelinti.com. That's www.travelinti.com. Travel Inti, your journey, your way. And now back to the show. What's your fascination with tiger sharks? You've been dubbed either cleverly or uncleverly the tiger shark king it's true yeah that that I, i'm not sure where that came from it might have also come from shark week um so i just kind of ran went with that one but i love tiger sharks because they are so adaptive they're so clever and really you know just fascinating they're the most interesting large shark in my opinion uh, different than white sharks. White sharks are like the really smart, uh, you know, almost royal family of uh, of sharks. And, you know, tiger sharks are pretty much on the same level in terms of being a top predator. Tiger sharks are like the great whites of the tropics. But they are really, you know, not as regal. You know, they don't, they do have beautiful stripes. 
but they're a little bit more like the, you know, the tank instead of the, you know, the heat seeking missile that gets fired from a long, far, long distance away. They're huge. They are bulky. They are really fascinating to me because if you look at their teeth, their teeth are shaped like can openers. And we know that one of the favorite prey items of tiger sharks are sea turtles. So you can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together mm -hmm. there and you can see that the trait for that tooth to evolve was because, well, they specialize on turtles. But here's where it gets interesting. Tiger sharks, they've been, I've been dubbed tiger shark king. Tiger shark's been dubbed something much worse, the garbage can of the ocean. And they had that nickname, which I don't think is fair, but they've had that nickname because they have pretty much eat everything and, you know, dead tiger sharks that have been washed up or, you know, they've seen what's been inside those stomachs for decades now, everything from, you know, inorganic objects to full suits of medieval armor, allegedly. Uh, I wasn't there for that one, but <laughs> I, I remember reading that one when I was a kid in a, in a book, license plates. I've, but I've seen similar stuff. I've seen tiger sharks, um, spit up bird feathers, you know, when we're tagging them, whole heads of sea turtles, crab, crab legs, crab arms, potato chip bag. Uh, they love sour cream and onion. I don't know what it is about those tiger sharks. They just love flavored lays, uh, shout out to lays, but, but they really do, uh, they're really adaptive. They're really plastic, flexible species that, um, you know, even though they evolved to eat turtles, look at them now, they're adapting to changes. They can sustain themselves on, you know, conch shells and, and lobster if they don't have a big sea turtle that comes through. So for me, that's just so inspiring. Uh, and it's like almost like kind of like a sign of hope for, um, how species are dealing with all the changes that are happening. I spend a lot of time in the Arctic and I'm personally fascinated with Greenland sharks. Do you know much about them? They're just such a mysterious species. I haven't studied them intimately. Uh, I've never seen a live one. I certainly know enough about them just from reading the scientific literature and, and, you know, editing papers and things like that. Greenland sharks are very cool. They live in cold waters and they are most likely based on some of the science that's been done in the last, you know, 10 years, the oldest and longest living vertebrate on planet earth. And what that means is that they can have lifespans up to th probably 300 years old, maybe between 150 to 300 years, which yeah, is I've, insane. I've read 400, maybe even as much as 600. Okay. And they don't even reach sexual maturity until like 150 years old. That's crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. What that means is that there are, are, there are Greenland sharks likely swimming in our oceans today that have been around since the civil war in the United States, you know, late 19th century, late 1800s. So <clears throat> pretty incredible. We aged them by doing some science and some kind of dating of things that showed up in their tissues, specifically their eyes, looking at different types of radio, um, you know, uh, ultraviolet or what, what I can't know what the term is there. I, I think it's carbon remember. 14 dating, Ca carbon 14 dating. Yeah. And bomb dating it's called. And, yeah. um, like isotopes essentially is what this is, is heavy particles, of atoms that just stay in tissues for a long time that can be traced back to major events that happen in human history. Animals assimilate carbon and, you know, certain parts stay in their tissues forever. So that's how we were able to date uh, the Greenland sharks. 
Yeah, they're crazy. Um, they're blind functionally, probably from a very early age. If you look at a picture of a Greenland shark, uh, you could see that their eyes look rather um, uh, opaque and kind of clouded over, like you see when you have a dog that gets old. You know, they have those eyes that kind of glaze over. But if you look closely, you can see a small parasite that is attached to that eyeball, and that's what renders those those sharks blind. I just find them fascinating. One heartbeat every 12 seconds, and they're virtually immune to cancer and other infectious diseases. And it makes you wonder if we can learn you know, from these sharks to help our, extend our own lifespans, uh, shield us from diseases, and... Um, I'm sure you have colleagues that are working on research in this area. I'm just following it. Any kind of news I can get about the Greenland shark, I'm fascinated. Yeah, they're a very interesting, what we call model species, because they are an extremophile. They live in an extreme environment. They live really long. They're able to be a top predator as blind, a blind predator. <clears throat> so we should probably pay attention to that. And you're right. How can animals like sharks and, and really other animals in the ocean show us a better way to live. We're so uh, interested and obsessed with technology and, you know, the rise of AI and all these things that are supposed to make our lives better. And they might be doing that, but I think some of the best secrets for how we can actually be better humans and, and live longer and all these other important components of health are probably buried in the tissues and skeletons of, of wild animals. And the concept of survival comes up a lot in your research. I've heard you uh, speak with some other interviewers. Um, what is the fascination with survival with regard to the research you're doing? What I love about the concept of survival is that for most animals, every minute, every day of their lives is essentially life or death. And that's not, you know, uh, over-exaggerating it. I mean, it literally is. These animals are balancing the need to acquire nutrients, get energy. In terms of being a top predator, you have to go kill something. Or in the case of a tiger shark, maybe you can just swim up and take a mouthful of something on the bottom, <laughs> which is maybe not such a bad idea. But, you know, they are also balancing the risk of being eaten by something else, um, especially if you're smaller any type of animals, always watching out for the next predator that might be lurking around the corner. And then you have different environmental factors, temperatures, storms, all these things coming together. Life in nature is really tough. So yeah. I like that because pretty much all the research that, that I do and that my NGO Beneath the Waves has been involved with can be laddered back to the concept of survival. What do these animals need to go about their lives as top predators. And from a conservation perspective, how can we pay attention to that and use those learnings to help create the future that these animals need in order to survive? That's what the, the conservation should be used for. So uh, I love that personally, um, you know, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur or even just somebody who's been building their own career, starting things, maybe not even as an entrepreneur, just going through the challenges of life, you know, getting paid and <laughs> dealing with issues. A lot of them pale in comparison to what animals have to, to go through in nature. So for me, it's always been kind of a nice perspective, uh, but I've always been able to kind of attach to that too, personally with my own journey of, of just trying to make it and, and uh, compete and, uh, and make a living. And so survival for me is, uh, it's everything. 
Uh, David Schiffman wrote in a book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive into the world's most misunderstood predator. He says there are many well-intentioned people uh, trying to help sharks, which is a good thing, but looking in the wrong places. He says shark finning isn't the problem. It's maybe one of the problems for the most part. Climate change isn't the problem. But he says the number one threat to shark populations is unsustainable overfishing. Do you agree? Yes, a hundred percent. Yep. Uh, and, and shark fin, the shark fin industry and shark finning is a component of overfishing. And what David is doing there uh, is that he's just really boiling it down to the, the biological sensitivities of these species. Sharks are slow growing. They reach very slow. Uh, they reach long ages. They, they can get to be, you know, hundreds of years old. Like we were just talking about, they take a long time to get to that maturity level. They may only have a few young. <clears throat> so it really takes sharks a while to get going. So if they get fished out or if they are removed at an unsustainable rate, it takes their populations a long time to recover, sometimes decades. So overfishing is the greatest threat to them. And shark finning is certainly part of that. And, and that's a complicated problem. Um, how can ordinary people who do, do care about sharks and they care about the health of the oceans help with an issue like overfishing? Well, it really just comes down to our choices. You know, um, one of the ways that sharks are affected by overfishing is like we just said about shark finning. That's not a choice that most people, at least in this part of the world, um, are, are going to have to make because it's not something that is really important part of our culture. Never really has been. Thankfully, um, even though the United States you know, is a top 10 um, player in the overall global shark fin trade, which is a whole other discussion path. We probably don't want to go down, mm -hmm. but, but, but it is, it is what it is the data are out there. Um, but you know, sharks are also caught and removed by fisheries that aren't targeting sharks. And that, that's a term that's known as bycatch. So sometimes animals large and small will be incidentally or accidentally captured and their fate, their survival can be affected by that. So how do you make a choice to, to move away from anything that could be not so good for a shark in terms of fisheries? I would say it's educating oneself about what type of seafood choices you might be making, what type of consumption choices you might be making, and, and trying to learn if, if there are any risks that face sharks for some, from some of the things that you enjoy to eat or that you enjoy doing. And if, there, if the answer is yes, then it would be stopping supporting th those industries for sure. Beneath the Waves is a nonprofit you founded, and you now serve as the CEO. Can you talk a little bit about Beneath the Waves and what its mission is? Certainly. So Beneath the Waves is a, a globally activated a nonprofit organization, non-governmental organization, also known as an NGO. And I started it in 2014, really as a platform to launch some of my own projects and interests, uh, you know, research projects on sharks. And over the years, uh, we've been able to do that. And our programs have really involved the notion of cutting edge technology in areas where there's an opportunity to advance conservation, whether it be for threatened species like sharks and, and looking at trying to help with the proper establishment of protected areas that actually will benefit sharks in, in, in global oceans, looking into the deep sea and trying to create new records of biodiversity in areas that are really poorly understood, trying to catalog what's out there in our ocean. 
Uh, and then also now looking into the concept of uh, blue carbon, which is a a climate change type uh, component that looks more at the habitat itself, some of the habitats in our ocean that are, are really uh, important for climate change mitigation just by existing. So we have these projects uh, all over the world, big focus in the Caribbean, science-driven. We like to have a very strong focus on, on media and, and storytelling as well through the work. And uh, I've been fortunate, Richard, to work with, uh, you know, world leaders, heads of state, governments, you know, and, and really helping arm them with, with the right information to make good decisions. It's taken a long time to get to that point. Um, it's still a relatively new uh, notion for, for me and for us, but it, it's really exciting. And it's given me hope for the power of, of science and, and the power of discovery to change the world. So you personally discovered the world's largest seagrass ecosystem in 2020. Um, if I recall, it's 50,000 square miles in the Bahamas. Can you talk about, first of all, how you found it and then the significance of it and why it matters? I wasn't the first living organism to, to make that discovery. It was uh, a collaboration with a bunch of tiger sharks, actually. So just a little bit of a callback to why they're so incredible. Uh, but involving research in the Bahamas that we'd been doing that I had personally been doing for about 10 years, I did a, a lot of my PhD work down in the Bahamas and yeah, um, by equipping tiger sharks with sensors and tags, camera tags, we were able to, uh, obtain new visual evidence of these very large, lush underwater meadows of grass, seagrass that we knew was there, but we didn't really know the true extent of, of how much was there. So the sharks kind of guided us into this discovery. Wow, there's a lot of seagrass there. We should probably think about trying to quantify this. And back in 2020, uh, I was working with one of my colleagues, Carlos Duarte, and sharing some of these data uh, over a Zoom call. And uh, this is literally during the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. We're all like, what are we doing? And I think I must have been looking for inspiration. And, and he kind of helped me. Uh, the light bulb went off for both of us in, in April, May 2020, put us down in this incredible journey, this incredible path of trying to use satellite data to map out how much seagrass was in the Bahamas, which we eventually did, um, mobilizing divers to go down and, and take images themselves of the seafloor to help validate and uh, refine our predictions and ultimately coming up with a number that is 50,000 square miles ish in the metric system. It's about 93,000 square kilometers. So making this uh, by far the largest seagrass ecosystem in the world. Uh, we like to make a joke at, <clears throat> at our organization, hashtag not a big deal. Um, <laughs> but it is a big deal because seagrass is a nature based solution to climate change. Seagrasses are incredibly efficient at sequestering carbon naturally. So that's, that's blue carbon you were speaking of earlier. This is the blue carbon that we were speaking of earlier. So blue carbon is carbon that is involved in the ocean uh, ocean cycle, the ocean carbon cycle. Pretty cool. And naturally, every day, uh, carbon enters the surface of the water through the atmosphere uh, and plants in the ocean is one of the main players that will uptake that carbon. Through photosynthesis, you're remembering back to, you know, for all the non-scientists out there, you know, ninth, 10th grade biology, you know, memorizing all those processes, all those diagrams, photosynthesis, the, probably the most single-handed powerful process that we have on planet earth. 
and it happens silently, quietly, and all the time. And what it does is it produces oxygen for us to breathe. And, and in the ocean, these seagrasses are really efficient at doing this. They will bring in, you know, up to 15 times more uh, carbon than rainforests, and they can store it like 35 times faster. And they store it in the root system below the the top layer of the sediment. So there's a lot of carbon down there, ancient carbon that's been stored forever. Tiger sharks cued us into it. Uh, this huge seagrass ecosystem, which is visible from space, by the way, I was hiding in plain sight. Wow. Um, you know, it's the largest carbon sink on earth. So it is naturally fighting against climate change mitigations. It's a huge asset for the, for the government of the Bahamas. So we've been working with them on creating a program that will allow them to take advantage of this and also protect it, which is really important. For me, it's really cool because uh, it's really gotten a lot of other countries excited about assets they may have in their backyard that they didn't know about, you know, related to blue carbon. And for me, that's what like true discovery is. It's, you know, seeing the same thing everybody else has seen, but thinking about it in a different way. And along those lines, you've described yourself as a, a social entrepreneur. So you think of scientists and entrepreneur, not two words that are normally mentioned in the same breath. Can you talk about what is meant by social entrepreneur? And do you have some examples of where science and entrepreneurism intersect? Sure. Science and entrepreneurship, uh, the traditional view of those th two things, probably oil and water, because right. entrepreneurs are business builders and they need to use entrepreneurial business tendencies, leaning into things like marketing and brand in order to build businesses. In terms of science, you know, we're always taught that it's always just about the data and the facts and being objective and not overselling or overpitching, letting the data and the science do the work for yourself. But I think there's really, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that they can both go hand in hand. So, um, I think it's exciting to be able to think about how business can help science, how science can help business. And if you think about conservation, business is probably what's going to actually save our planet. And we have to look at how we think about resources to, to aid and fund conservation. It has to come from the private sector. It has to come from business, which is probably the thing that got us here in the first place. But this is just the nature of it all. So social entrepreneur is a term that uh, extends the normal entrepreneur, business builder to one that has a social cause or a benefit to society, whether it's people or the environment. So a good example of a social entrepreneur would be somebody who's studying uh, and trying to protect uh, underwater seagrass meadows. Uh, and at the same time, that protection will create some sort of monetary or business uh, that will ultimately benefit people. So we're able to build businesses, uh, make money, and also you know, save an aspect of the ocean at the same time. And the, that is a pretty cool concept and it's not perverse. You can save the ocean and save the world and make money at the same time. That's not, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that we have to think about that more if we really want to make a dent uh, at scale, because it does come down to just human livelihoods at the end of the day. Does that idea have a lot of detractors, particularly in the science community? For sure. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I feel like I've been a, a walking dartboard my whole career. It's fine. You know, I've, I've got the scars to prove it. If you pulled my pants down, you'd see a lot of uh, scars, you know, we on don't my have legs. to do that here. We don't have to do that here. You know, that's for somewhere else, but, um, I'm sorry about that, but, <laughs> but you know, 
there's definitely some scars, um, but you know the skin has developed a rhino-like hide of uh, resiliency over the years, and most of those darts just bounce off of me now. But but in the earlier days, for sure, um, yeah, I would get a lot of flack for even embracing something as simple as using a video to talk about my science. It was absurd that we that I had I got hate from that back in the day. Whereas now that's all social media is Instagram and these things. But uh, it's totally fine and understandable. And if you're going to be doing anything that is somewhat different from uh, the normal course, you sort of have to expect that there are going to be some people out there that probably don't agree. And that's okay. Is that what you mean by the haters? For sure. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with the haters? Um, you don't give them any energy. You know, you first of all, realize that people are probably giving you hate because you're doing something good and you're doing something different. And, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, that's, we should have our own opinions about everything, but, um, your opinion of me is might not be the same opinion that I have of, of myself and, and that's okay. And of course I, I want people to like my work and I want people to embrace it, but I also recognize that not everybody may. And that's okay. And not everybody may agree with how I got this photo or how I did this piece of science. That's okay. It really doesn't matter. I feel good about it. And I'm actually seeing the benefits of it for, you know, a certain group of people. So it's almost like if you don't have any haters, you maybe aren't doing enough in a way because you're just kind of like everybody else. But, um, yeah, I mean, people can be very jealous about things. Some people like to be the first. Other folks don't like their territory being stepped on. For me, I try to not pay attention to those things as much. Um, and I, I'll admit it. There was a period earlier in my career where I was probably protective of certain things and I didn't want to share too many details on certain things. And, uh, now I'm, I'm probably a lot more open book about a lot of things because, you know, we only have so much time on this planet. I don't want to be, uh, completely untrusting of everybody. You can't trust everybody. I'll tell you that. That's a new realization for me. That's we don't have to get into, but at the same point, you know, People are good and uh, just being a good person does get you pretty far. Mm -hmm. One last question. When you look out across the globe and you look at the, you know, the health of our oceans, the, the plastic, climate change, endangered species, is there any one issue that keeps you awake at night or one more than the others? For sure. And that would be losing hope. You know, apathy is, uh, you know, the worst thing that we could have. Everybody will say it's so much worse today than it was last year. It's so much less sharks than when I grew up and things are changing and the baselines do shift around. But the reality is, is these problems have always been around. These problems have always been here. Um, from the beginning of time, we have struggled as a species to, figure out how to coexist with our planet. You know, even if you go back to, you know, some of the, and I'm not necessarily a religious person, but if you go back to some of the biblical stories, things like Noah's Ark, and you look at Adam and Eve, you see, you know, old stories of humans struggling with the balance of nature. So we've always had this kind of challenge in front of us. We're just really learning a lot more about it as we've gotten more sophisticated as a species as it's become more of us, we've added to the problem. Don't get me wrong, but the problem's always been there. So as long as we don't lose hope and we continue to talk about them, work on them, 
I think that's the biggest thing that we have to focus on because all the issues are there. And, you know, it's just about trying to um, feel good about our planet and realize that it's okay to still post a picture of a stunning elephant, a big tusker. Like I was looking at your Instagram recently, Richard, and you know, you were saying there might be like 40 of those individuals left on, on the planet. And that's obviously a pretty staggering statistic because of the ivory trade and all these things. But the fact that there are 40 is still something that's worth fighting for and celebrating. The fact that they still exist is awesome. And that picture is going to get shared with a lot of people and they're going to see it. And that's going to be helpful for them. You know, we have to still know that there's still some amazing stuff out there and it's all worth protecting. And we can use this technology like Instagram to share that information so that more people care, more people become advocates for some of these species that are in trouble. So there's a, there's always a, a silver lining to some of the, you know, evolution of changes in technology that could be used for the better. I agree a hundred percent, you know, and, and we should use all those platforms, podcasts, you know, social media and, uh, celebrate what we're doing. And you know, I'm just so grateful to be able to travel the world and see animals and, and connect with people. Uh, I don't take it for granted ever, you know, and, and over the last year, I've spent a bit more time in the home office and it's reinforced how, how critical those experiences are for me. And it makes me a better person uh, when I even step out into nature. So folks at home, if you want to learn more about Austin's work, you can find him on Instagram. It's at DR Austin Gallagher and Gallagher spelled G A L L A G H E R. His Twitter or X as I'm calling it now is at DR Austin G. That sounds like a, a MC rapper DR Austin G. Yep. yep. Yeah, there's, like a, there's a separate account for all the music too, that we can, <laughs> we can share in the, in the notes. His website is austingallagher.com. And let's not forget his nonprofit, beneaththewaves.org. Please do go have a look. And I, I mean, they have some great content there. And I know we have thousands, thousands of listeners out there who do care about sharks and the health of our oceans. Austin, anything you'd like to add before we sign off? No, that, that's, that's it. Thank you for the, for the shout outs there. This has been a great conversation. Um, you know, I really hope you and I can get out there together on an expedition at some point and, um, and, and explore together. You bet. Thanks for coming on again. My pleasure. Be safe out there. Thanks. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thanks to Dr. Austin Gallagher for an inspiring conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. You can tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any comments or feedback. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show what you'd like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Mm-hmm.